in Matthew chapter 18. If you could come with me please to Matthew chapter 18. That would be good. I'm reading from verse 1. At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him and set him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke on the subject of it's time to grow up. And the theme of that message basically was that it was time for us as believers, as Christians, to stop being childish and to be mature men and women of God. This morning, the title of the message is, Except You Become As Little Children. And in keeping with uh, this Children's Day, where the children received their Sunday school prizes. Now, there is a vast difference, of course, between being childlike and being childish. Someone who is childish is very immature, infantile in their behavior, someone who is stunted in their emotional growth, someone who is childlike, is endearing, has tremendous quality, is admirable, and there's a big difference. And not for the first time did the disciples question among themselves who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Their ambitious and selfish spirit was very contrary to Jesus himself and to the whole ethos of his kingdom. And even in Matthew chapter 20, James and John got their own mother embroiled in this vax issue of who would be the greatest. And she went to Jesus and basically asked him that when he would come into his kingdom, uh, who would sit on his right hand and his left? She wanted John and James, her two boys, to sit at the right hand and left hand of Christ in his kingdom. The disciples became so fixated with this quest of who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, meaning who among them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, that this subject even reared its ugly head at the Last Supper at that final Passover that Jesus had with his disciples. You remember how at that Last Supper, how he was showing them how that he himself would be the Passover lamb that would be slain for the sins of the whole world. And even in the midst of those very poignant and precious moments, whenever he would be literally just hours away from his life being taken from him, even in the midst of that situation, they could not resist wondering and talking among themselves who was going to be 
the greatest in the kingdom. And it was in that particular instant uh, in John chapter 13 where Jesus gave them that wonderful illustration of servanthood where he donned the apron and he washed his disciples' feet and showed them how that he, even he was the greatest, uh, but he became a servant for their sake. And so he uh, taught them that lesson. Now, when it came to be who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus tackled this issue basically in two ways. Again, in Matthew chapter 20, uh, after the mother uh, asked Jesus who would sit at his right hand, wanting it to be James and John, his, her sons, uh, Jesus said to them, he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so in dealing with this issue, uh, Jesus first of all directs them that if they were going to be great in his kingdom, uh, one of the signs of greatness, basically, if I could paraphrase, is not so much how many people is going to serve you, but how many people you're going to serve. In other words, you want to be great, be a great servant. If you want to be a leader, be a servant. And that's why he served them uh, with washing their feet. Now, he did tell them, of course, that one day, one day they would actually sit on thrones, and one day that they themselves, those that they would be ruling over Israel, the tribes of Israel, but not yet, not right now. That would come a little bit later. And so the second way uh, he dealt with this issue is right here in Matthew 18, where he called a little child into the midst of them. Now you have to understand, uh, what was the typical cultural attitude particularly in those days in the eastern lands, towards children. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 13 and 14, Then little children were brought to him, that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed uh, from them. And then in Matthew 21, Verse 12, then Jesus went out into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected 
praise. And so we see here that Jesus had an entirely different attitude towards children than even his disciples. It seemed to be the men particularly of that day, that era, that generation. It seemed to be that children were to be seen and not heard. They were to be put to the sidelines. You can understand that you expect Jesus to be interrupted by mere children. But you can see in those two readings that Jesus had a different attitude. That he loved the little children. And he swept them up in his arms. And he laid his hands on them. And he prayed for them. Because he saw so much potential in those little lives. And let's hope that we love our children. And that we love children in general. And that we do see potential in them. I know sometimes they drive us nuts. Amen? <laughs> but still, they're a gift of God. And they're so much important to us that we just got to love them and protect them and guide them and guard them. And so Jesus calls a little child, sets him in the midst of them, and he said, Assuredly, I say to you, Unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So childlikeness, being like a child, is something that Christ wants us to possess, to be like. But what did he mean by being like a child, being childlike. Just what are the qualities of childlikeness that he looks for in our lives? Well, first thing he talked about was being converted. Except you be converted. Now, it is true that oftentimes we preachers use that whenever we're talking and trying to win people to Christ. And we're telling them to humble themselves before God and become like a child and accept by faith God's wonderful gift of life through His Son. And that's fine, that's okay, it's permissible to do that. But actually in the context that Jesus spoke those words, He was speaking to believers. He was speaking to those who already believed in Him. He was actually speaking to his disciples. So what does he mean by saying to them, except you be converted? Well, the word conversion, of course, we have our, our normal thinking of the word conversion. The person comes to Christ and they get converted and they get this new life. But, but the word itself is very much like the word repentance. It means to change. For there to be a change in our lives. And Jesus is telling his disciples that they would have to change. Their way of thinking was all wrong. They were puffed up with pride. All they could think about was who was going to be the greatest among them in the kingdom of God. And so their mindset was completely and utterly wrong. It was the total opposite to what Jesus was like. All they could think about was position and power and status and influence. All they could think about who would look up to them. Who would be the chief even among them. 
You know, and you can understand to some degree why they would think this because after all, Jesus out of the 12 had chosen Peter, James and John as his inner circle. In moments of intimacy and, and poignant moments in his life, particularly in the garden, he would take those three, separate them from the rest and take them away. And of course, Peter being the natural spokesman as he was, it was easy to see who he thought should be the number one. And James and John, uh, well, they definitely got their mother involved, so they, they had ambition too. And so, even though he promised them that one day they would sit on, on, on thrones and one day they would rule, rule over Israel, but not yet because they were too full of themselves. They were too puffed up with pride. They were too big for their boots, as we would say. They were being childish, but not childlike. It was me, 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 me. And whenever a believer is taken up constantly with themselves and what people can do for them and how people can minister to them, you begin to realize there's an element of childishness there. They haven't really grown up. They're a little bit immature. And so... Jesus was saying that they would have to have a different mindset if they were going to be like him. And if we are childlike, then our motives are pure. And we are not self-seeking or selfish, but selfless. The Bible says an honor preferring one another. So there's a tendency if you're childish to put yourself first, but if you're childlike to put others first. And these are the qualities that the Lord wants to see in our lives. The desire to be held in high regard by others, to be noticed by others, it can be intoxicating. It really can. And it also can be very, very subtle. We can secretly find ourselves, quietly find ourselves looking for affirmation and commendation from others. Do you ever find yourself looking for that? Now you're too holy, all you lot, to even think that way. Uh, but it's very, very subtle. It can, it can come in. Uh, and before you know it, you're looking for it. You're, you're expecting it. You're wanting it. Uh, I remember a few visits ago to the Philippines. I was three, four years ago. And uh, one of the pastors I've known there for many years, he, he started a new church plant. And he said to me, David, would you come and preach? He says, I want you to see this new church we've started. He says, I love it. It's wonderful. And I just want you to come and just meet the people and preach for me and just see what you think. And so I was very happy to do that. And we went there. It was quite a drive away. It was an hour and a half. And we got there. It was early one Sunday morning. And the church was buzzing. It was only about two years old. And there was a good number there. And there was excitement. It was just ground level stuff. You know, you know when a church just begins, there's a, there's, a, there's a different buzz about it because everybody's on the ground level building it up. And uh, so I was happy to be there. And I'd chosen a message that morning that I prayed much about and really felt that it would, it would fit the bill for that morning. And actually, it really did. Uh, and I preached it and I felt just so free in it. And he interpreted it for me and we flowed together and, and it went very well. And the people responded admirably and they enjoyed it. And, and afterwards, they shook my hand and said so. And on the way home, uh, he, he, he was highly praising me for this wonderful message and how well it went down, how the church loved it. And of course, when somebody's pouring that on to you, uh, you know, you begin to feel, oh, oh that's lovely. I just, that's, you know, you, I guess. 
Boy, I hit the spot this morning, you know. I was really firing on all cylinders anointed today. And, you know, I felt really good. And when you, when you get that the whole way home, you, you're feeling quite good about yourself. And, and so I was, I really, I was feeling really good. And uh, so I was due to preach that evening in, in Claire's church where she was attending. And she said to me, Dad, what are you preaching on tonight? And, you know, I, I've got dozens of sermons. And whenever you're away, you maybe take maybe a dozen sermons. You know that you preached before. But you feel that out of all of that, God will guide you what to preach. And, and uh, I says, well, I'm not too sure. I, I think I'm going to just go with what I preached this morning. And you can see why I thought that. You know, because it really went well that morning, you know. And I thought, boy, I, that's really a humdinger that. I'll go with that tonight. And, and so I just relaxed that Sunday and bathed in the glow of that Sunday morning. It was wonderful. And, and uh, I went that Sunday night, and five minutes into the message, I, I felt awful. I just, I knew I had missed it by a million miles. I just, it was like the words was bouncing back at the wall and hit me up the face again. And it was the hardest preach I ever had in my life. I really, really struggled. I, I was forgetting things. I was blanking out. It was just awful. And I was looking at the congregation. I thought, oh dear, I wish I wasn't here tonight. This is awful. And afterwards it was over, I sat down beside Claire and she says, Dad, see your family doesn't spare you. She says, Dad, what happened? She says, you're really bombed. <laughs> she says, I've never heard that worse than that. I says, thanks very much, Claire, I really need to hear that, as if I don't know that, you know. <laughs> so that brings me neatly to my next point, being humble. <laughs> <laughs> being converted <coughs> and being humble. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child. In God's kingdom, we either humble ourselves or we'll be humbled. We'll either humble ourselves or we'll be humbled. God will find a way to humble us. And we'll know it when it happens. We'll know it. Don't need anybody to tell us. We'll just know it. Now, there's nothing wrong with ambition. There's nothing wrong with having aspiration. There's nothing wrong with wanting to do better or to do great, uh, you know, to do your very, very best. There's nothing wrong with wanting to bless the people and do what you can. And There's nothing wrong with any of that. I mean, even a little child, ask a little child what they're going to be when they grow up. Am I going to be an astronaut? Or am I going to be a pilot? I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a nurse, I'm going to be a vet, or I'm going to be a sportsman, or I'm going to be this or that. And, and there's nothing wrong with any of those aspirations that a child has. Many of them go on to be what they wanted to be as a little child. That's their ambition in life, and they do that. But what is wrong is whenever we grow up, and in order to be that, or to do that, or to have that, that we start tramping over bodies to get there. And it's at the cost of her marriage and the cost of her children, even the very cost of her health and the cost of her, above all of her spiritual lives. And we sacrifice everything and everyone in order to accomplish that one thing. That's when pride has really taken over and we have lost our humility. Humility is the very character of Christ himself. In Philippians chapter 2, What does it say about Christ? Philippians 
Well, let's read from verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, who being in essence God, that means, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming in the likeness of men, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Such humility in Christ. What condescension that the Son of God, that the creator of the ends of the earth, would come and limit himself to a human body and allow himself to be treated so cruelly and wickedly that he'd even die for us, even the point of death to go on a cross for us. Such was the humility of Christ. And so Jesus said that being childlike was to be converted, to change ourselves, to start to think in a way that a child would think, not to be so pretentious and arrogant and haughty, to be humble, genuinely humble. Uh, you heard about the man who wrote a book on humility. He called it Ten Great People Who Knew Me. <laughs> wasn't very humble, was he? Some of you will get that later tonight when you think about it. Another quality of being childlike is being simple. I don't mean being stupid or being silly, but being simple. Having a sense of innocence. And it's lovely when you meet somebody who is uncomplicated, unsophisticated, just simple in their attitude. I was thinking about this particular point uh, during the week and somebody came to mind that to me was the epitome of simplicity and had such a sweet, lovely, loving spirit and that was Ken's late mother, Betty Rollins. And for those of you old hands in here, it's been here a long time, who knew Betty you'll know what I'm saying. For years, her and Sally sat over on that side. She always, wherever Sally sat, she sat beside her, kept her company. And she had such a sweet spirit about her, such a simple attitude, such a loving, lovely person. She was just a a joy to be around. I remember whenever she was struggling in the last weeks and last days of her life, because she was only a young woman when she died. She was only what, Ken? She was only, only 49, just young. And I remember attending her and and going and we would break bread together up in her house there. And during all of that time, there was never any complaint. She had such a a simple, sweet spirit. She just loved the Lord, loved people and, uh, and, and, and was trusting God with all of her heart. And it was just a a pleasure to be with her and just to help to minister. Many times it was the other way around. I went to minister her and she ended up ministering to me. Uh, and there's such a, a lovely simplicity about her. 
I remember another lady I met, and, and this sounds as if I'm name-dropping, but uh, so be it if you think so. Uh, but young Ruth wrote a little thing on her, on her, on her Facebook uh, just there last week, and it reminded me, uh, she wrote about Corrie ten Boom. And I was reminded of having the privilege of one time actually meeting Corrie ten Boom in her own home in California. And she had just come through a stroke situation, so... Uh, I would love to have got an autograph book, but her nurse said, please don't ask her to write because she's really struggling to write. But she could speak very clearly and plainly. And uh, here was a woman who, who whose uh, her family was all uh, killed during the, the Nazi, during the Holocaust. And uh, there were Dutch people and they kept people in their home, Jews, they hid them. And then they were found out somebody betrayed them and she lost all of her family. She survived, but the rest was all slain. And... Uh, she went about churches for years talking about forgiveness and the love of God. And so uh, my pastor at that time took me to California with him. He never told me where I was going that morning. He says, I want you to get up. We're getting up early. We're going on a drive. I want you to meet someone. I'm going to visit somebody. It'd be lovely for you to meet them. And I have no idea who it was. And we stopped the car, walked up this beautiful pathway to this house. There was palm trees around it. California is like that. And uh, I had no idea. And he rang the doorbell. And she opened the door, and there she was standing there. And my jaw dropped. <laughs> and, uh, and what a lovely, precious, simple, innocent spirit. And whenever we talked about Jesus, her whole face just lit up. It just was wreathed with smiles. And then she says to me, would you pray for me? Uh, and I got the opportunity to pray for her, and then she prayed for me. And, and what a lovely, precious woman of God. So that's what I mean by being simple. And, and that's the qualities that Christ wants in us. Even if we're clever, and even if we're academic, and even if we've got that level of sophistication in that way, irregardless, our spirit needs to be sweet and humble and simple. That's what Christ is looking for. And then, of course, finally, being trusting. Being trusting. Children love to take the hand of their parents. Particularly if they're somewhere where they're unsure of. You know, you take your children to the zoo uh, and you walk around the, the cages uh, and the kids love to look in there and then suddenly that big lion comes over <laughs> and your child run behind you, grab your hand. His daddy and mommy's there and it feels safe. And for the next half an hour, it's holding your hand very tightly till it gets its confidence back. And that's the way that God wants us to be with him. To trust him. To put our hand in his hand like a child would. Not to be so big for our own bits and so super confident with ourselves that we don't need God's protection and we don't need God's guidance we can do everything for ourselves no we can't God wants us to become childlike trusting in fact a child is so trusting that you have to warn it against strangers haven't you it's terrible in this day and age you have to do that but you have to do that because they're so naturally trusting aren't they generally speaking a child isn't bigoted or racist or status conscious they learn that. And sadly, sometimes they learn that at home. 
But generally they're not like that. That comes later, bit by bit. They pick that up as they go through life. But God wants us enough to trust him and allow him to lead us and to guide us. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. So let's be childlike in our walk with God. Let's not be arrogant and proud, full of ourselves. It doesn't mean that that we're ever so humble, humble. I'm so humble, humble. You know, that we're proud of being humble. Because some people are proud of their humility. It means recognizing what we are in Christ, recognizing what we have in Christ, recognize the abilities that God's given us, the giftings He's given us, but to walk in a way that's childlike, that's pleasing to Him, where He gets the glory, where He is honored. You know, whenever our children are well-behaved and they're not rude or arrogant and they're kind and they're sweet, there's some of that's reflected back on us, isn't there? Isn't there? Yeah. So if we're like that, guess what? Guess who that reflects on? Our Heavenly Father. So we want to be a good advert for Him, don't we? I don't want to go about and people have been put off. Because how often have you heard, well, if that's what Christians are like. And sadly, sometimes that's true. That's people behave in a very unchristian manner, even though they say they're believers. But if we are childlike in our attitudes, then people will be drawn to that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.